Thanks so much for finding us here at the Morning Glory Project. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani-Fassbender, and my co-producer, Angela Washington, and I are ever so proud and honored to bring the stories of amazing people to you. These are survivors, thrivers, innovators, and trailblazers who tell us not just their stories, but how they got through whatever they got through to get to where they are. We hope you find them as inspiring as we do. Thanks so much for listening and for giving us the honor of your time. So what's the purpose of poetry anyway? In these troubling times of ecological challenge, political vitriol, and social unrest, it's easy to wonder about the value of the arts at all in all of their forms. But for Susan Goldsmith-Wildridge, the answer is simple. Poetry isn't merely a distraction from the world. It's a necessity element of surviving it. She sees herself as living between two worlds, the one our bodies inhabit and the one from where poems come. She's dedicated much of her adult life to inviting others to join her in a world of words, taking poetry out of its rooms in high towers and making it accessible to anyone. Susan's book, Poem Crazy, Freeing Your Life with Words, is now in its 30th Crown Random House printing, and it was number seven on a Penguin Random list of best books on writing. And Anne Lamott wrote, this is a wonderful book, smart, wide-eyed, joyful, helpful, inspiring. You're going to love it and love writing poetry more for having read it. And I'd like to add that I met Susan, I think it was in 2015, a number of years ago, 2015 or even further back than that. And I attended a workshop that she did. And I'm going to say that I came from a house in which there was not poetry. I wasn't raised with that. We had a a set of encyclopedias without the S, (laughs) because the S was expensive. It was a double volume. We couldn't afford that one. And there were a a handful of books on the shelves, but poetry was new to me. And it was, I found it so intimidating. And Susan made it not. Susan made me feel like a poet and made everyone in the room feel as though poetry was so accessible. So I'm thrilled to welcome Susan Goldsmith-Wildridge to the Morning Glory Project. Welcome, Susan. Betsy, I'm so happy to be here. And I remember meeting you and I remember that event and how much fun we had. And, (laughs) and yes, I started very early in a diary, a journal that, that I kept up from the age of 13 on. And so it was my little private world with words. So I didn't really enter a world of judgment where it became something frightening. I will say, I also, it was a very academic household, but there was not much poetry. It was more about the sciences, uh, social science. And so it was a high school English teacher that brought me to poetry and to keeping a lifelong journal that I think I might have told you the very first thing I wrote in the, the journal was, it was a letter to Dottie based on the diary of Anne Frank who wrote to Kitty. And the first thing I wrote was, I hope I can keep this one up. I've never had a journal before. Knowing me, probably not. (laughs) And here, this many years later, and and I have seen Susan's journal. Now, I'm going to, I'm putting air quotes here, journals, because your journals are not what I think lots of people would think of as journals, where it's like, dear diary, this is how crummy I feel today. Um, It's, they're filled with 
feathers and drawings and meanderings and words and ideas and snippets and anything that you find intriguing or attractive or anything that comes within, it just seems to find its way to your journal. And I, I remember being so, so inspired by that thinking, you know, I think that a lot of people start and stop journals because they think it is supposed to be a certain way. Well, I will say, Betsy, if you who are listening don't get anything out of this podcast except that you might consider beginning a journal, I don't know how people think without it because my mind rambles. When you're jotting something in a journal, it forces you to focus. And I do focus more and more on what I love. My journal is a place to gather. I gather things people have said. I often hear myself say something and I jot it down, or I'll hear Betsy say something and write it down. And I do tape. I use Scotch magic tape and a scissors. It's like kindergarten. And I <laughs> cut out little things that I re read. I, I love animals. I belong to a lot of environmental organizations. I cut out the wolves and the cheetahs and the the orangutans and the, my journal is filled with animals and I've learned that scotch magic tape, you have to get scotch magic tape. I've learned it. the petals hold their color when you tape them down with scotch magic tape. Now there's a helpful hint from Halloween's right off the start, right? Well, well, and to me, what's interesting about this, Susan, is that I think that some people think of a journal as like a confessional and and sometimes my own journal has served that i've i've sent messages to myself but i think that sometimes people quit journaling because they think it's got to look a, a certain way it's almost as if they are viewing it through some i call it a supposed to lens like it's supposed to look a certain way or it's yeah. supposed to be a certain something and it's not so i'm not up to it so i quit as opposed to it's really whatever the hell you want it to be well one of the things I tell people is don't get a journal that's too good for you. <laughs> people are often given a journal that's leather with an embossed oak tree or dragon, and then it's parchment pages. There is no way in hell that you're going to be good enough for that journal. <laughs> <laughs> it's intimidating. So I started with these little black books with lined paper, that, and, and they allow me to be at a really boring meeting and appear to be taking notes. And so I... <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I pretend I'm listening and I jot down whatever I want to. And I've been doing that ever since I was a kid. So I'm permanently in kindergarten. But what I would love to suggest to people is one of the biggest problems people have with journals is they feel, oh, my God, I was in Italy last summer and I have to catch up. And it's so boring to try to go back. And so if you can start in the very present moment, even if there's nothing happening, you can say, oh, my colored pencils are looking dull. It's time to sharpen them. Open with that. Open with, I, I nicked my finger when I was pruning the salvia this morning. Open with that. And don't feel like you have to say more than that. Um, most people, including me, Betsy, start out with the gripes. You know, mine were about my parents, my mother's nags, my father's yelling. And what happens is let yourself do that. But what happens is you get bored with it. So eventually, just start gathering what you love. I, I do suggest in, that people not write anything that will really hurt someone unless you really want to hurt someone because they will read it. And mm -hmm. so I don't write anything about my children. I, I'm careful not to do that. Now, not everyone wants to do that, but just keep that in mind. It 
can be it can almost be a weapon. Well, and, and I, I know I've worked with a lot of memoirists for whom journaling is a different matter. They have documented sorrows or abuses or anger or those things. And they do need to find a safe place to express that and put it away in a safe place. So someone just doesn't happen upon it, right. both for their own sake, because I don't want my privacy intruded upon and because that's your unedited, unfiltered place. And so you wouldn't want someone to be harmed by, by something that is not yet finished or that you're just working through. So I, I get that. Right. So Susan, what's intriguing to me about your approach to poetry and and indeed journaling now that we're talking about it too, but but poetry specifically, is that I I really grew up thinking that poets were like they were just a whole different esoteric class than me. You know, they, they were um, the literati and, and they were the high towered Shakespearean types and they knew all the plays and they knew all the names of all the poets from Ireland and all of that. And I didn't know that stuff. And so I found myself at first, I, I love poetry. And when I'd find little pieces of it, it would sing to me and fill my heart in a certain way, but I sort of didn't feel like I knew the secret handshake. Sweetie, this is this is my life's work. Is I know to, that's to, why I'm talking to you yes, <laughs> to help people see. We we all came from an oral culture. At one point, we were nomads. There was no written language. Uh, people were telling stories, and everyone had their part in the storytelling. And we now have a very elitist world, and the academic world probably doesn't even like what I'm doing. Uh, there was a woman named Helen Vendler who I think she was at Harvard and she maybe wrote for the New York Times and she was worried about the the dumbing down of poetry. And the thing is, people dance, people sing. Poetry is our birthright. I'm passionate about it. And what I... What I've learned is that people are afraid, and they're afraid to even put out one word. So as you know, I'm, I'm looking at a pile of words right now. I help people start just by gathering words. And I've got something I cut out of a catalog. It says, Jungle Cat Valentines. And then the word Firefly Frenzy comes along with Loud Noises and Marmoset next to zippered jacket. So it could be a zippered marmoset jacket. Now that would <laughs> be horrifying, but I'm sure there is such a thing. And and I just picked up the word universal and the word solution, universal solution. So what I try to do is help people with their fear because I've learned that people are afraid to come up with one word. They've been so criticized in school. Teachers have even helped that elevation of poetry out of out of a realm where we're allowed to enter. And um, all I can tell you is, here's a little girl, fourth grader. I'm spring with lambs in my field. Mm. Here's a little girl named Victoria Lavlola. She was six. She wrote, I love the dim moon. I love the immense kindness. Mm. You know, her mother came walking into the library workshop and she looked like she had no idea what to do with this little genius. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, here's a juvenile hall kid. These are the ones I know by heart. I'm a brown gangster colliding with death. I'm a rose slamming love with hate. Wow. Now, not only is that brilliant, but in a very few words, it's showing that he knows he's a rose 
but he's slamming love with hate. And these, these come from words he gathered. He might not have had that word collide or slam. He may have just pulled it out of your little basket. And- it was from my word. And we do a word pool. I have people steal words from poems, and then we create a word pool on the board. And that's where I came up with Clock's Breath. It's a chapter in my book, Fool's Gold, and, and Preach Nibble, which is going to be a chapter in my current book. <laughs> wait, wait, I do- wait, wait. I have to linger with that one. Preach Nibble. <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> I I, I'm guilty of Preach Nibbles. I'm constantly preaching, and I usually catch myself now because I say, oops. <laughs> A A preach nibble sounds like something I could tolerate. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the words just randomly ended up next to each other on a a whiteboard, preach and nibble. And and that happens all the time, God swing. So randomness is our friend when we start writing. And, you know, here's another juvenile hall kid. Uh, I'm a turquoise circle rolling down a mountain. I'm a drum beating in the rain with no one to hear me. I'm the number 50. So far from the end and so far from the beginning, I'm what you call life, hard to hold. So, we, you know, I'm the number 50, so far from the end and so far from the beginning. That's genius. Gosh. And he didn't know he was a writer. We started calling him life because the kids in the juvie always have nicknames. So these are are random people. It happens over and over. Pardon me for interrupting you. No, please, you have to. Uh, otherwise, I'm <laughs> preach nibbling nonstop. Well, I, I, I'm right. I'm right along in your peach nibble, nibble wagon here. It, it really strikes me that, um, and I wonder how you think about this. It, it seems that since the the kind of birth of rap, that poetry is finding new audiences and welcoming new kinds of voices that wouldn't have been part of thought of as poets before. And now it's okay for a macho kid in the hood to rhyme. It's thrilling, you know, and I don't love slams personally because I don't like the idea of it winners and losers, because my feeling is that we're all winners if we're willing to step into the arena. Um, I've always hated competition and I realize it's because I'm very competitive. (laughs) <laughs> um, I finally realized that. Uh, yes, it's fabulous what's happening, actually in slam, actually in spoken word. Uh, Amanda Gorman's shifting the world of poetry. Mm-hmm. When Poem Crazy came out, believe it or not, it was in 1996, and nobody thought there was room for a book like that. Most people thought, no, what are you kidding me, a book about writing poetry? There is a transformation happening now, and every type of poetry is coming back in. Uh, Rumi has been the most popular poet in the world for years, and he's getting even bigger now. And his poems were just recited while he was spinning. He was a whirling dervish. So there's a definite renaissance happening in poetry, and it's thrilling. Because, And, and I think you wanted me to say or earlier, I just wanted to add, I do feel it saves lives. It saves people's lives. Can you, that's exactly where I was going to go, because... Mm-hmm. If anyone meets you, I mean, and anyone listening to you and just meeting you now through your voice for the first time, you are this delightful, effervescent presence. And I was struck by that too. But as a person who has spent a fair amount of time trying to understand human nature, I also know that, as Carl Jung said, the brighter the persona, the darker the shadow, right? Very often, yes. So I... I knew intuitively without knowing your story before you and I spoke about it recently that 
all of this light and bright and pixie-like beautiful energy that you have is not it's not all of me. <laughs> it's not all of you. That's that's yes, the word I was yes. searching for. So can you tell me, I know that the phrase that you used when you and I spoke before this conversation and you said, girl interrupted, ain't got nothing on me. <laughs> that phrase, that sentence stuck in my head. Can you tell me a little bit about what prompted you back in your history? I, I want people to know that you didn't just kind of enter this planet with this effervescent notion that that poetry and words and art in general is how you got here? Well, poetry and the act of, I feel as if I write my way through life. And I did have a rough childhood. You know, again, neither of my parents are alive to hear this. And it looked like a beautiful childhood. It was in the University of Chicago academic world. But, you know, I was a mystical little girl and I had an angry father, uh, brilliant, wonderful man, but he had terrible anger issues and was very quick to, to judge and to leap out with, with condemning words. And I had a, I kind of felt abandoned as a child. I think as I do my workshops, more and more people felt this way. People feel and they also feel they're not enough. Though I did, and Betsy, you're being so polite in edging me toward telling the story of my extreme psychotic break. Uh, I was one of the first baby boomers, and I was didn't know how to deal with the sexual revolution. I had I was very attractive. I'll say I'm pretty old now, but well, you're you're pretty cute now, so I can only imagine. <laughs> Thanks, honey. But I had a series of boyfriends, and and my father would make comments like. It's like there's a bitch in heat around here or um, who are you going to shack up with next? That's when I, I'd live with my Greek boyfriend and my, my, my boyfriend, Joel, who I was going to marry. And Joel was drafted out of Peace Corps training. This was in the late 60s and sent to Vietnam. And I couldn't cope. I was living in New York City and I was supposed to be writing a thesis in that academic world of anthropology with very stringent, I, I, let me just say, I was at Columbia Barnard. I hated it. I hated Barnard. I still do. I, I, forgive me, Barnard. I'm sure some people love you. So I, I kind of went off the deep end and in extreme way. And my parents committed me. I was declared paranoid schizophrenic which I've been told later is just, I was deeply, it came from manic depression, which I still struggle with. I think they call it bipolar now. And I've never taken drugs because when I was locked up in a place called W3, and that's why I say Girl Interrupted Ain't Got Nothing on Me. It was much more intense than what they showed in that movie because I was held down. I was shot full of drugs. I was forced to take drugs for months against my will um, in liquid form and I had what's called the Thorazine shuffle. <laughs> and I learned that I was going to have to fake, feign sanity to get out of there. I finally tricked my way out after wait, wait, wait. months. <laughs> let, let me pause there. So yes. <laughs> you knew that you were going to have to act sane mm -hmm. to be released from yep. the psych ward. <laughs> Yes. And I wasn't really sane yet. The fortunate thing is my mother and father had a friend named Dr. Redding, who may still be on the lamb with Kevorkian, a brilliant Belgian uh, psychotherapist. And he said to my father and my mother, 
that when the daffodils come out, because my breakdown took place in November, December, I always had trouble with Chicago winters. He said, when the daffodils come out, she's going to be okay. And her breakdown is so extreme, it's likely to be a one-time episode. And he was right. And it was uh, so lucky. You know, it's funny. You've you said that to me in our in our conversation, mm-hmm. and that has stuck with me because that's not. I'm a therapist. I, I haven't heard someone say that before. So there was something in him that recognized that this was a this was a situational matter, and it wasn't an endogenous condition that you had. It was it was a, a reaction to the circumstances that you were in. Well, I don't know how much he knew about Joel going to Vietnam. I don't know. I think the man was probably psychic. Uh, Mm -hmm. Dr. Redding, you could Google him, R-E-D-I-N-G. I I don't think he's still alive. I think he was brilliant. And I think he just sensed. He had met me before. I'd spent time with him in New York. He knew me when I was reasonably sane. And uh, I think he just knew. You're right. And your parents were wise enough to believe him. Yeah, they clung to that, Mm. though I was so hard on them. I mean, I have just a funny story, and then we can go on to something else, Betsy. But my father, they tried so hard to bring me things, and and they brought me Moby Dick to read, which was crazy. I mean, I was so drugged, I could hardly... That was the one time in my life I stopped writing in my journal. But they brought me Moby Dick, and I opened the book, and I said, I thought everything was fake. So I said, this is a fake book. No one would would open a book with the words, call me Ishmael. (laughs) (laughs) This is the most famous words in in literature. And uh, so my parents were stymied. They did try to help me. I was watching people get shock therapy every day. I don't know why that didn't happen to me. Thank heavens that didn't happen. And uh, I'm really fine now, but it's, it's been a choice and it's a constant choice what I watched, and, and uh, Eckhart Tolle said this, that we all have this voice in our heads. If you could hear what people were saying to themselves walking down the street, a lot of it's crazy. And I'm just now very aware when I start having paranoid thoughts, I think, oh, there I go again, so I can catch myself. Well, it sounds like, and I mean this in the most complimentary of ways, it sounds like you have two kinds of voices in your head. You know, this this critical kind of crazy making thing, this kind of thinking the worst possible. And then this other voice that says, now, wait a minute. Yes, but I would have to say I have more than two, darling. <laughs> <laughs> well, we all do. We all do. I practice something called the inner guide meditation. And uh, I really recommend it to people. Look it up. It's called the inner guide meditation by Edwin Steinbrecher. He was a genius. He became one of my teachers and mentors, and he developed a, a Jungian system where you work with the archetypal energies in the inner realm in the presence of a guide who makes it safe. And so I talked to my fifth guide. I've been doing this since the 80s. Her name is Josie. I also do a lot of prayer. I walk around with my hands up in the air all the time saying, thank you, Divine Spirit. Thank you, Great Mystery, for for being right now in the air with this beautiful, incredible woman in the Morning Glory Project. I'm doing a prayer right now. And uh, I sort of look around on my walks to make sure no one's going to arrest me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, and and let me say, too, that your embrace of the mystical, of basically wisdom or inspiration from wherever it might come, yes, is is an intriguing thing. And even if 
even if some of your choices might not be my cup of tea or somebody else's, I think that we can each say, now, wait a minute, from where can we gather? You know, I, I, for example, I'm really, I'm always inspired by excellence when I, when I happen to see it and it doesn't matter. I don't, I don't like sports at all, but when I see somebody who has mastered their sport, I'm, I'm, I have to figure out how they did that. Not just their physical training, but what did they have inside them that made them do that? I, I hear you. Cause what it often does is make me cry. Like that, it, it does to me too. Like that I, skater Chan, what's his first name? Jason Chan. I didn't even watch the Olympics, but I watched him and it just made me weep to watch him, uh, skate dancing to Elton John, it, just the, the beauty of the, of what he was doing. I, so I hear you. Yeah. So whether it's sport or science or music or art or industry or parenting or whatever it is, when I, when I'm in the presence of that, I feel inspired. That's sort of, I just, I don't know where all that magic comes from. And that's my notion of mysticism for you. I know that you embrace various meditations and astrology and different kinds of things, anything that will kind of buoy you up out of. Yes. And and I've learned not to share it with too many people and here, who knows how many people are going to hear this, but one thing I will say that's universal, Betsy, that people need, and I think it's being more and more recognized is I am very fortunate to be surrounded by a garden that I've been able to help create. And I am barefoot all the time and I take a little scissors with me everywhere I go and I clip and I prune and I steal a flower now and then and to tape in my journal. But being barefoot outside, walking around outside, I have a little fountain out front and the birds come every morning. There's a hummingbird that tries to scare away the big robins. And it's there's no doubt that nature, especially if we can be barefoot, if we can lie in grass, everyone agrees that it's healing. And I think right now in these times, we're all a bit traumatized by news. If it's not one thing, it's another. And I realize, you know, right now it happens to be what's going on in Ukraine and we're all uh, praying. And But if we can get in nature and go barefoot and lean against a tree and write leaning against a tree, um, it shifts our energy in a very positive way. And I have a friend who even does it in the snow, Betsy Bunsen. She's making <laughs> angels on the, in the snow in a swimming suit. Oh my. Well, I, <laughs> she's, I'm afraid you might lose me on that one, but <laughs> she's, a, she's a Wim Hof follower. <laughs> there we go. Well, you know, really what you, you're talking about, see if I'm, if I'm thinking of this the way that you might, or if I just come at it from a different angle, but to me, what all of this sounds like, you know, somebody might listen to some of this and think, well, that's way out there. Or that's too woo woo for me or whatever. They might be dismissive, but what I think of it as, I mean, particularly when you're talking about nature, you're talking about simply being present, being yes. present for yes. what's this moment has yes. in, in its sensations, in its ideas, in its thoughts and its inspiration and not fretting. So about the past, that documentation of your Italy trip, you didn't do, or the future, what somebody might think of this or that. It's just sort of this, you have this, um, this presence. Well, Betsy, let's loop this back because what this will do is loop us back to why poetry is so important. Because when you're writing 
and you're not doing it out of trying to sound good. You're immersed in the present moment and you're calling forth something from your soul. You really are. And or you are outside in nature or in your room looking very carefully at something, noticing it, writing down where the paint ends and the golden edge of the frame begins. I'm looking at a at a frame right now. It pulls you into the present moment, which is very healing. And the other thing I, I just wanted to add to that is I was listening to a man named Jorge Luis Delgado yesterday, who's a Peruvian shaman. I mean, here I go into the woo-woo again. But he said in the Andes, the people believe that their past is in front of them and that the only way to stay or be in the present is to heal that which is in front of you because your past is in the way, is blocking your future unless you can heal it. And that was such an, I'm really trying to grasp that. And I'm seeing that in world events right now. Well, I have a, a less esoteric way that I've always said it to myself, which is, that which you don't complete, you get to repeat. Yes, you know? absolutely. And that's what essentially what he's saying. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's the act of writing, the act of keeping a journal, the act of noticing within and without for a poem can bring us into that beautiful present where things are always basically okay in the present. You, I mean, unless you happen to be in a torture chamber, you know, um, generally it's, it's the past that makes us sad and the future that frightens us. And, uh, the journal and the poetry can keep us right there in that present moment you're talking about. Well, and you say your journal keeps you alive. I don't know how people manage without them. (laughs) Think about it, folks. Just, just grab a little book and, and, don't even put a word in or put in, steal a few words, you know, just steal the word gold, steal the word joy, and uh, just start playing with those words. Mm. But you you might even, you know, I don't like to pitch it too much, but because Poem Crazy doesn't need you, but but it really does help you begin to play with language in a different way than you may have ever thought about. Well, you know what Poem Crazy did for me is it gave me permission to to... It, it let me know I didn't need the secret handshake. Um, and I, I heard you say in the workshop that I attended years ago, and I wrote it in my own journal, because I have always been a journal keeper, that poetry is the way to discover that we're beautiful. And that really stuck with me because, and, and playing in your, in your book, doing some of the, I don't want to call them exercises, taking some of the suggestions that you have has connected me to my own inner poet that I didn't think existed. I always thought I was just a prose writer. Just hear that just in there. <laughs> I was just a prose writer. I couldn't have been a, a, a poet by any means, but I've discovered my own beautiful poetry within. And that is many thanks to you, Susan Goldsmith Wooldridge. Thank you so much for being part of the Morning Glory Project, for being such a, a supporter of the spirit of each person that you encounter. Your beautiful book, Poem Crazy, is always available. You can always find a copy and mine is well-worn. <laughs> thank you so much for being part of this conversation today. Betsy, thank you. I'm so honored. And this is a beautiful thing you're doing and bless you. And thank you all for listening. <laughs> you know, 
As I reflect on my conversation with Susan Goldsmith-Wildridge, a couple of things really pop out. And the first is, of course, she's a poet and she's written this fabulous book, Poem Crazy, that's been around for literally for decades and has inspired so many people to be unintimidated by poetry, to just find within themselves the, the notion of playing with words and having fun with it and not being so sort of stuffy about it all. And I love how she busts down the ivory towers of literati and all of that and makes it accessible for us all. I think everyone's a poet. Every child I've ever known is a poet. They love the rhythm of language and all of that. We somehow disqualify ourselves as we get through school, somehow thinking that we're just not capable. Susan busts that all down for us. And I'm, I'm so appreciative of her for that. But the other element of Susan's story that I was touched by is that here she is. She's this person who has a persona that people just gravitate to because she's so light and bright and welcoming and positive and encouraging and all of those things. And she's genuinely all of those things. But she also has sorrow and a history that's quite troubled. And you might not know that when you first meet her. It makes me wonder how many times we make grand assumptions about who people are before getting to know them just by how they present in the world. I'm touched by how, given her history, that she has chosen to be really present in the moment that she's living in. She does it by writing, by gathering things and keeping them in a journal. And really, if ever you get a chance to see one of Susan's journals, you'll be changed, believe me. (laughs) But also that she lets herself be present for this moment, unencumbered by the past, not worrying about the future. And yes, we're in troubled times from our political climate to coming out of, hopefully coming out of a pandemic. And as we record this, the country of Ukraine is under attack. It's a really scary time. And we who are feeling, people might be feeling that intensely. And Susan does too. We've She and I have talked about that. But there's something about gathering yourself and being present in a certain moment that gives you some power and some strength to do what you're called to do. I'm reminded of the words that Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote many decades ago, and he said, what lies behind us and what lies before us are tiny matters compared to what lies within us. So whether it's journaling, or painting, or singing, or playing an instrument, or cooking, or kicking a ball, or dancing, or gardening, finding your way to express yourself is what I'd invite you to do. And that's the way we bloom.